And now, coming to you live from the 2018 World Science Fiction Convention <laughs> in San Jose, California, right. it's Jonathan Schran and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest, Rich Larson, on the Good Street Podcast. And that's the way we are. Don't pay any attention. No. Uh, <laughs> I don't even want to do it. He wants to. Wait, okay, well, no, no, Rich, you've got your first novel out. Yeah. But before we get to that, you, I'm trying to, I was trying to figure this out in my own mind. How old are you? 26. And you've got a... Over a hundred stories out yeah, in something bunch. like five years. Uh, yeah, well, since like 2011, I think, was my first professional sale. So you've had over a hundred stories in six years. Something like years. that, yeah. That, I was trying to figure out, is that a record? Um, I mean, even if you had been a pulp writer in the 30s, that would be a lot of output. Yeah, yeah, I write really fast, and I've got a lot of ideas, so I just keep doing it. Is it one of these things where you just feel like you have to get this story done so because the next one is simmering? Yeah, totally. It's kind of like being on a treadmill a lot of the time. And so whenever I'm writing a story, it usually gives me ideas for like three more stories, yeah. and it just keeps branching off and off. Do you don't feel like you're writing too fast? Sometimes I do feel like I write too fast and that I should slow down and produce more polished work. I'm kind of like that... <laughs> Kind of like the anti-Ted Chang. (laughs) He goes off somewhere and produces like one beautiful, perfect story per year. And then I'm kind of like the Walmart of science fiction. (laughs) But the stories stories are really good, the ones I've read. And I've not read all hundred of them. But but I had a conversation once with Philip Jose Farmer who had what his problem was. And the reason that a lot of his late work seemed rushed, they were all novels, mostly not stories, was he said by the time he's halfway through a, a novel, he just wants to get it out of the way because the next one is, is the one he's interested in. Yeah. And um, that if you were writing 100 novels in five years, the chances are they would be a little bit rushed as, as his tended to be. Yeah, definitely. Uh, right now I feel really like a little tied down <laughs> by novels because as I'm writing this sequel to Annex, the first book, I've got like 12 or 15 like first short story scenes in various documents mm-hmm. that I really want to get to. But I'm kind of making myself hold off. You mentioned to me a couple of months ago we were talking at Ickville about you really wanted to get back to short stories. The yeah. novels felt like an anvil around your neck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, short stories are definitely my preferred medium Uh, part of it is just like having lots of disparate ideas and being able to just do one thing with an idea and then jump Mm. to a whole new thing with a novel you have to really really like your idea because you're stuck with it for a long time you don't think there's a way to braid some of these multiple ideas into one larger narrative or uh, broader idea at book length I have thought about that Um, sometimes I do look at my my like idea document for short stories and see if there's anything that could like kickstart a scene in the novel or some element that I could take and and stick in there uh, but a lot of the time it's like it's too varied and with a novel you just have like one universe and the novels that I'm writing right now they're set you know in pretty much just like modern day and so I don't get to do a lot of the stuff that I really love in short fiction which is playing with uh, like extrapolating on technology mm. and societal trends and just made up future slang and all that fun stuff. 
Let's go back for a second. What was your introduction to science fiction? Where did you start reading it? What was it that got you enthused? Uh, The very first science fiction I ever read was Sailing Bright Eternity by Gregory Benford. Mm -hmm. Galactic Center. Yeah, the Galactic Center saga. Yeah. I found it when I was really little. I want to say like, like six or seven years old. And I found it in an old dusty library. And I really liked the cover because mm-hmm. it had like mm-hmm. a shiny pyramid on it or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I read that book. Like, well, I, I read it. I couldn't understand. I still don't understand the physics at all. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Did you go back uh, and pick up the other books in the series going back to yeah. the Ocean of Night, I guess, was the first one? Yeah. I ended up like through the years kind of tracking them all down individually. Mm-hmm. And so now I actually I own the whole the whole set and a couple summers ago I read them like all the way through which is really neat Greg will be glad to hear that because he doesn't know if he has young writers uh, reading him anymore Uh, and I'm sure but but, but, again that's large scale canvases that's not anything like short fiction no no not at all Uh, I guess the stuff I really loved about those books Part of it was the world building. Uh, I think he just uses really beautiful language. Like I really like mm. the prose that he uses to describe all these, you know, physics phenomena and all this space stuff. Uh, just makes it really like punchy. Yeah, and I also thought like the characters were really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the well, he, I know he picked up a lot of his stylistic habits from reading Faulkner and from being a Southerner and growing up in Alabama. Huh. So there's a there's a lot of very literary kinds of description. You're right of abstruse physics concepts, which is yeah. something not very many people either have tried to do or could do. I suppose it's a really cool collision. I think. Where did your ideas about science come from then? Because Greg's a physicist and you're not. No, I'm. Nowhere near any kind of scientist. Um, like the only class I ever failed was chemistry. I hate chemistry. <laughs> Physics and math were a bit of a struggle for me. Uh, I really like biology. Mm. Yeah, um, but I didn't get into science fiction through science. I got into it through science fiction. Through fiction, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So, so go ahead. Well, you're, you're a six-year-old tottering around with an enormous copy of. Sort of sailing bright eternity. Mm-hmm. Where do you go from there? In terms of exploring, what what is it that sort of draws you forward in, in, into the field and makes it seem like something you want to keep doing? Um, I guess I've always liked thinking about the future mm-hmm. and just thinking about possibilities, uh, what might happen. Um, I do like reading tech articles and science magazines just you know the dumbed down version of stuff of course I don't read like studies um and there are a few books that really like hooked me on science fiction of the kind that I write now mm-hmm. so not the Gregory Benford sure. stuff uh there was one book Feed by M.T. Anderson mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and so I read that book I think maybe just before high school and so that kind of like shifted my interest into like the near future science fiction. Mm-hmm. So not the space opera stuff, no like space travel, um, no hard science fiction, but just the really like societal, you know, 20, 30 years into the future mm-hmm. max, that kind of range is what I really like to do now. 
Were you looking at any short fiction? Because you've mentioned only novels so far. Um, yeah, there was a few different anthologies. Uh, the Lou Anders anthologies, mm -hmm. Fast Forward 1 and 2, and uh, Future Shocks. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then I also, when I was a kid, my parents bought me a big Philip K. Dick collection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that was my short fiction reading. So how do you go from being, well, when did you start feel like, you know, you could tell stories yourself and started writing? How did you get into that? Uh, I always wrote stuff kind of just as a hobby. Uh, like when I was a kid, I would write stories about like when I was a really little kid I'd write stories about you know like my Lego toys doing mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. um, and then whenever I had to write assignments for school the creative writing assignments were always the most fun for me uh, the library the local library when I was in Canada they had a short story contest every year mm -hmm. And it was cash was the prize, wow. and so it was a great motivator <laughs> for a young person. Um, still is, um, and it was like a two thousand word limit. And so for several years, I would write one short story a year. It would be two thousand words, <laughs> and I would give it to the to the library, and I would win my cash prize. And that's what I thought of as like short stories. It's two thousand words. You give it to the library. They give you money. Yeah. money. So that was my conception of short fiction for a long time. Well, when we get to annex, one of the things that I thought was interesting about it is that there's obviously a lot of Peter Pan in it. And that's pretty mainstream classic stuff. Is that something that you sort of grew up reading as well? No, I feel like there's a lot of Peter Pan in it because a lot of things have a lot of Peter Pan. Well, that's true. Yeah. So it's just kind of like one step. But you've actually got Lost Boys in it, and you've got you know, yeah. you've got a windy character, basically. Yeah, definitely. And they do board a ship and stuff like mm. that. Yeah. Um, the main influences for Annex were just all the books that I really loved when I was a kid. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of Animorphs in there. There's a lot of Shades Children, Garth mm. Nix. Yeah. Um, there's some... Uh, there was that book, The Thief Lord, mm -hmm. Cornelia... Funky or Cornelia Funky, funky I think. So. Yeah, yeah. And so that had kids, like, hiding in a theater. Right, I remember. okay. I didn't... Mm-hmm. And so all of those, I just kind of stirred them all up together, and I wanted to write the kind of book that I would have loved as, like, a 13-year-old, I mm -hmm. guess. That sure. would have just done everything for me, ticked all the boxes that I liked. And... And so when you sit down, I mean, how, how long ago did you start work on Annex? I mean, so how far into, into your career were you? Um, well, before Annex, I wrote, like, three novels, each of them deeply flawed in their own way. Mm -hmm. I don't think any will ever see the light of day. Mm -hmm. I thought about rewriting one of them. Uh, the very first one was a near-future cyberpunk thriller that... Oh, it, was, it hinged like the plot hinged on me deeply misunderstanding how the internet worked <laughs> <laughs> and it's become such like a gaping plot hole that I don't think there's any way to to rework it um, and then the second one I wrote was kind of a takeoff of the Tower of Babel so it was like a retelling of the Bible story but in a mm -hmm. science fiction yeah. setting uh, then the third one was a departure because it was actually fantasy. It was like uh, kind of clock punk mm -hmm. type thing. Um, it was it was pretty fun. 
And I think when I was still trying to like pitch that one to agents, around that time, I wrote a short story called um, Mother Mother. And that short story had the character of Violet, um, and it had Bo, and it was basically... Um, it's almost intact in the novel. There's a part where they're, like, hunting Bo's other mother for the mm-hmm. first time. That was pretty much the short story. So it was, like, 2,000 words, and um, no one wanted to publish it because it had too many things going on, and it was too confusing. Mm-hmm. And so later, I think the following summer, I kind of just took that and spooled it out and turned it into a full-length novel. And you had the whole trilogy in mind before you you did it? (laughs) No, no. No, I actually never intended to write a trilogy. Um, I really wanted to give Annex kind of like a satisfying ending and just have everything relatively wrapped up. Um, But then the deal came along and I took the money Hmm. because deep down I'm still that kid handing stories to the library and give me cash. Um, And you discovered that you get more cash for trilogies than for short stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I took the deal and writing the sequel has been tricky because it involves kind of unspooling things that I was trying to wrap up and uh, making new problems Mm -hmm. for myself. Violet's an interesting character, and I gather from the overall title of the trilogy, The Violet Wars, Mm -hmm. that that makes her a central figure. And you do interesting gender things with her as well. Was was that something that was part of the original conception, that uh, she's essentially trans? Yeah. Um, Before I wrote that short story, uh, Mother, Mother... I already had the idea for Violet as a character. Mm -hmm. So originally I had the idea of a trans teenager um, living in this basically post-apocalyptic wasteland Mm -hmm. where she was like the only survivor of some kind of parasitic zombie invasion thing. And so I started writing a short story just about her. Uh, It opened with like her... Um, her parents like coming home all zombified it was very very mm. dark and creepy and a lot of that ended up carrying over yeah. into Annex uh, I never finished that short story but I really liked the character and so then I ended up transplanting her into that other short story mm-hmm. the mother mother and then um, when it became apparent that that setting could handle a whole novel she became kind of like the the co-center of the novel alongside Bo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, you think that that character made the novel easier to write once you had somebody you liked writing about? Yeah, you have to have characters that you really like because <laughs> you're stuck with them for a long time. Yeah. Um, like with short stories, I'll often just do kind of like types, character mm-hmm. types. If I'm writing a story that's really about an idea not really about a relationship or a character. I have almost just, like, standard characters that I'll just throw in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, But with a novel... Well, it's harder, but in a way it's also more rewarding because you get to do a lot of things really slowly. You get to do a lot of, like, slow burns. Mm -hmm. Um, You get to slowly layer 
bits and pieces of the character's past. Whereas with a short story, you know, one kind of like trick that I'll often do in short stories is that they have one event in their past that shaped the decision they're making in the short story. Mm. So you get to see like that, that like central event. But of course, in real life, we don't have like one pivotal moment ever. Mm. We're just like a collection of tons of tiny moments. And so when you're writing a novel, you get to use tons of tiny moments. And it feels more real, I think. Well, I think scene by scene, it's a very fast-moving novel. And there are some really nice set pieces in it. But then there's this other layer, which is what attracted me to it, was, was Violet's backstory, her, her parents. Uh, the idea of parents becoming zombified seems to me ought to make this really appealing to a lot of adolescents. So I guess they're marketing this as a young adult novel, are they not? Or are they not? I think they switched it around. I think they're marketing it as adult. The arc doesn't say anything about young adult on it. Uh, mm. uh, but I, I can't remember what the price point is. Uh, the only way I can tell young adult novels these days are sometimes the price point that they're selling at. Yeah. fifteen ninety-five. it's probably young adult. If it's twenty-seven ninety-five, it's adult. Yeah. Uh, when I was writing it, I definitely thought of it as a young adult yeah. novel. Mm-hmm. And I think it works that way, too. Go ahead. Certainly. So, this might sound like almost like a trite question, but do you find, feel that it's that you are optimistic about the future, and that it's in, you know, how do you feel about reflecting that in fiction? Uh, I feel like in science fiction, there's kind of a pendulum that goes between optimism and pessimism about the future. Um, I tend to write stories that I think of as decently optimistic, but like I'm a I guess I'm a pessimist by nature, and so my bar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Would you describe Annex as a dystopian novel? Uh, I think it kind of sits between like dystopia and the the normal kind of alien invasion novel. Yeah, kind of combines. My feeling has always been that if aliens invade, and that's not an honest dystopia. Dystopias ought to be something we do to ourselves, Mm -hmm. Um, and. The, uh, there, there's an aspect of Annex which is both dystopian and utopian at the same time from the point of view of the kids because mm-hmm. they are liberated from parents. They are yeah. liberated from adults. This is the this yeah. is part of the Peter Pan appeal of it, I think. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, they've got this great world that they can run themselves. On the other hand, it's too bad it's dominated by really scary aliens. Yeah, yeah. And that's always the big problem with why fiction is getting the adults out of the way somehow. Yeah. And so, uh, and it does kind of like tap into that childhood fantasy of just being able to run free, you know, and climb mm-hmm. on the stuff you're not supposed to climb on, and you know, grab whatever food you want from the supermarket and all that stuff. But on the other hand, the aliens act as the worst parents in the world in some ways. Yeah, uh, the other mother thing is definitely from like Coraline inspired by that mm. and just the idea of having like a really uh, you know it's like a fishing lure almost I mm. guess where the aliens are trying to figure out like what what can get these kids to mm, come back and they just hit on the most obvious solution like oh we'll just show them their mom their mom yeah mm-hmm. yeah 
I just was going to follow up on that a little bit because uh, the idea of the aliens as uh, the, the other mother idea is really frightening, and it's and and Coraline was partly based on a Victorian story by Lucy Lane Clifford called The New Mother, mm-hmm. where kids disobey and their 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 mother says, if you continue to disobey and, 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 and wreck the garden or whatever it is, I'm leaving in The New Mother. And the last scene of the novel, The New Mother comes in with a wooden tail, and that's pretty much the end of the story. Huh. And it's just really scary because you're left wondering, what is The New Mother going to do? And is she... And she's presented... It's a fairy tale, but essentially she's presented as an alien overlord. Mm-hmm. And... There's a way of reading this whole story that if you you can get rid of your parents, but what replaces them might be worse. <laughs> yeah, careful what you wish for. Hmm. So I mean, Annex came out, has only, only just recently come out, but it's not the only book you have out this year, is it? It's got Tomorrow, Tomorrow Factory, your first story collection has just come out. Mm-hmm. What's coming out? Uh, yeah, it comes out in October. I'm really excited about that one, actually. How does it feel sitting down to look at the hundred plus? stories you have to try and work out what you should put in yeah. to build this collection that will be your first collection your major calling card as a short story writer yeah it was tough and like I've written some stories since you know making the table of contents where it's like oh I wish I mm-hmm. could have slipped that in um, but mostly what I did was I tried to balance between stories that were really well received in like years best mm-hmm. compilations and then stories that I personally really liked that didn't get a lot of attention mm-hmm. because maybe they were only in like a print magazine or they were in a small anthology not many people mm-hmm. read and so I wanted to mix kind of uh, the ones that I knew people liked with the ones that I know I really like What was the process of actually compiling? Was it you, you, you by yourself just choosing the stories that go in or are you going back and forth with the publisher and working it out or... Uh, like, I drew up kind of, like, the initial list, and then they had a few that they were like, we need these ones in mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but basically, I had the whole list of all the stories I've written, and I got to narrow it down because it's science fiction only, so yeah. I got rid of uh. any, like, fantasy, horror, or literary stories, so that I just looked at the science fiction, and I tried to make sure that I didn't have any, like, two similar stories or the same themes. And I try to get a good variation of length. So you never have, like, two stories that are the exact same length mm-hmm. and one after another. It's like a concert set in a way, because you have to figure out what, you know, what, how am I going to present myself to this audience? Yeah. Many of whom will have read a few of your stories. I have not read all of your stories by a long shot. How many stories are in the book? Uh, 23. Okay, that's a good number. Yeah. Uh, we've had conversations before on the podcast about that process of winnowing stories because there are some writers who we should not name who, as soon as they had enough stories for a book, got the book out, including stories that probably shouldn't have been in the book had they waited. Mm. And then there are people like you. Ken Liu is a good example. He'd written, what, a couple of hundred stories before his first collection came out. And it's a terrific collection because all the weaker stories are not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sounds like you're doing something similar. Yeah, I think the hardest was picking the first story and the last story because mm-hmm. you want something that's really, like, accessible for the first story and then you want like a really strong ending for the ending 
like a concert. Yeah. Well, I always figure uh, that for a book of pieces, you're looking for a seduction at the beginning mm-hmm. to draw them right. someone in, make them comfortable, make them feel like it's somewhere they want to be. Mm-hmm. And that last one is supposed to be the one they put it and they go, "Wow, that was great." Yeah, yeah. And if you don't, I mean, and whether or not it's the best or not, I think it's kind of a bit of a nonsensical idea. But there is that thing like I want to like a like because if I go wow at the end of it, not only do I go away feeling great about the writer who I've been you know who I've been reading and about their book, I'm going to be telling everybody else about it because it was terrific, and I'll I'll even forgive you if there's a few sort of stories that are like like they're fine, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily outstanding. Do you do you do that with your anthology? Of course. So 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 some writer who. Is not at the last is not the last story in the anthology. Knows that they didn't have the most powerful no, story. story <laughs> no, 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 their story is really very good. Um, when you had the book, well, the, the I guess the manuscript of the book in your hands, did you see anything in your the work that you had there that drew it together that made you feel, you know, that, that you, it gave you some kind of overview of what you've been doing yourself? Huh. Well, it was really neat to read stories that I hadn't looked at in mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. and go back that way and um, one thing that I found was a lot of the stories that I wrote you know like five years ago I wouldn't write them now yeah um, and the way I wrote was just different um, sometimes weaker um, sometimes almost like more creative mm-hmm. I think that over time I've kind of like narrowed my focus to where like I know I can sell a story if I do this 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 and I'll just make sure I do those things. Um, like the early stories I wrote, a lot of them didn't really have that strong ending that people like so much. They didn't really have emotional uh, like resolution in any way. They were a lot more well, like literary in the sense that they were very much about like nice prose and very much about ambiguity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were there? Were we ever tempted to look at a story and say, "I should, I should rewrite this. I should fix it. I should twiddle with it a little bit." Uh, that's kind of like the never-ending temptation. Yeah, yeah, to keep to keep uh, working on a story. Uh, but I've learned that you know it's really not worth it, <laughs> especially when I have so many other ideas already right. on the go. Yeah, so usually I write something and then I submit it and then it's done. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not big on revising, which made revising the novel a lot of (laughs) (laughs) big pain. I know as you get further into the trilogy, you're going to have the problem that everybody has of how is this consistent with everything I've said before? Mm -hmm. And I I mean, what now people refer to as the George Martin problem because he has to have his legions of readers tell him if he makes a mistake from something that was you know, in a novel six volumes ago. Yeah, I'm very glad there's a small cast of characters. Mm. Makes it a lot easier. Uh, what about... Uh, the, you mentioned it, it's, it's a lot of stuff that you like to read, but there's a lot of stuff in it that feels like a graphic novel and some that feels like a movie. Uh, is, is there a lot of like media influence in, in your work and yeah. graphic novel influence? Uh, not so much graphic novels, but definitely TV and movies. Um, like when I was a kid, I was a voracious reader. I read all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, around high school, my reading kind of slowed, dropped off. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and kind of from there, a lot of my influences have been like film and television mm-hmm. and just visual stuff. And that's how I like to write. Like when I write, I'm usually kind of imagining it like through a camera. Mm-hmm. And so I really like writing the cinematic stuff. Mm-hmm. And for like writing Annex, I was thinking in terms of like set pieces, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, like here's the climactic, like boarding the ship, here's a big fire, here's an explosion, uh, all that good stuff. You've got a great alien in that too. Where did that alien come from? Whose name I keep wanting to say Groot, and it's not even thing, <laughs> but it just sounds like it's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Gloom. Gloom, right. Uh, yeah, that character was a lot of fun to write. Uh, he's kind of like the fish-out-of-water character. You have that alien who doesn't quite get mm-hmm. how to act human um, and tries to to do it and fails to comedic effect. Um, the idea for him... Ah, uh, yeah, no, I remember the original idea for him. I actually had this really creepy dream about a guy uh, who was dressed all in black and he was wearing, like, kind of a some kind of hat and his eyeballs could like drop out and scuttle around on the floor hmm. like little mm, like little beetles I guess yeah and so he was just like sitting on the floor but his eyeballs were going around everywhere looking at stuff for hmm. him yeah and so originally I thought like this is gonna be like a horror character mm-hmm. yeah but uh Bloom is pretty much like uh, comic relief. Um, He's also a special effect. I mean, he he'd be a great CGI character if if there were to be a film of this. And by the way, has there been any interest in films either from the stories or from the well, it's early for Annex, maybe? But I imagine people would shop it around. Yeah, yeah. Um, I sold my first film option earlier this year. It Uh was for a short story. One of the stories in the collection, actually. Hmm. Uh, Like, one of those old stories that not many people read the first time around. It was Mm -hmm. actually in, like, a Canadian literary magazine. So very small. Hmm. Um, But um, a film agent read one of my stories online and then got in touch with my book agent and asked for the collection mm-hmm. and then she just kind of went through it and she found this one story that she loved and she started shopping it like crazy mm. um, all of this happened while I was actually in Europe and so there were a lot of like uh, phone calls um, back and forth and trying to figure stuff out um, at one point, there was, like, six interested parties, and I was still like, this isn't really going to happen, because I've had, you know, like, nibbles before mm-hmm. for film stuff, and film people are very excitable, they're very <laughs> into your your vision and their vision, and then the next day, they're really into something else. Right. Yeah. Uh, but this time, it actually worked out, and so I um, sold... Uh, the option for Atrophy to Warner Brothers and that deal kind of like spurred some other stuff and so there is something in the works now Mm. for Annex but I'm not going to say anything because nothing is signed yeah no and even then that stuff doesn't mean anything anyway yeah I mean I I only expect the option money not the movie to 
if you get a check, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And you only expect the, you know, the movie when you're lined up outside the theatre with a ticket, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That seems to be how it is. Um, sorry. No, you go ahead. Given how active you've been uh, as a short story writer over the last five, six years, are you reading a lot of your peers? Do you feel part of the contemporary science fiction scene and connected to, connect to what's going on? I mean, you went to Clarion. That must have had a huge influence. Yeah, I did go to Clarion West. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Met tons of great people. Um, but, like, honestly, my reading hasn't, like, picked up again yeah. since... Like, since that high school drop-off that I mentioned, I'm still way more likely to watch movies or TV and get ideas that way, which, I mean, most of the stuff in film and television comes from books anyway, so, yeah, I guess I'm a visual learner that way. You've mentioned being in Europe during this negotiation. Mm -hmm. You have had kind of an interesting background. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and, and education and... And where you were born, which is... Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was actually born overseas in mm-hmm. Niger, in Gomi. And um, my parents were missionaries. My dad specifically was a language teacher. Mm-hmm. And so he taught the local language, Hausa, to um, like missionaries or foreign aid workers or whoever mm-hmm. coming into the country who needed to be able to communicate. Because French is like the official language in Niger, but uh, everyone speaks Hausa, at least where we were. Mm -hmm. What kind of a missionary was he? he? Um, They were with SIM missions. So it's like um, Protestant. Well, okay, but. I don't know. I'm personally not uh, very religious. Well, when did you leave Niger? Uh, We made like the permanent move um, when I was 10 years old and we went to Grand Prairie, Alberta mm. up in Canada, which was a big swing temperature wise. <laughs> I was going to say the climate's a little different there. Yeah, because uh, my mom had family there. Yeah. Yeah, and so I spent, I think like my formative years in Grand Prairie. Uh, that's where I went to high school and everything. And then after that, I went to Edmonton for school. Mm-hmm. I started. I actually started studying creative writing, and I found that I really didn't like it, and so I switched over into <laughs> languages. And so I started studying French and Spanish. Um, I got a degree in Romance languages, and then I lived for a year in Spain. I was teaching English there. Mm-hmm. And after that, I decided to pursue translation, and that took me to Ottawa, uh, which is where I'm based right now. And I was one semester away from getting my, my translation degree, and then I got this whole book deal, and I put it all on hold to just write full-time. So do you still have aspirations to be a translator? Um, it's become, like, the the plan B. Like, plan A is writing fiction for sure. a living, because mm-hmm. that's kind of just the dream. I would love to be able to exist solely on that. Um, and I can right now because I don't have a very glamorous lifestyle. I don't have, you know, a mortgage and I don't have mm-hmm. kids. So I can just write short fiction and sell a novel every now and again, film option now and again, and get by. 
What did you not like about that creative writing program that you ran on the university? Uh, I don't know. It just seemed... It seemed very... Insular, I guess. And a little... A little clicky. Yeah, that's a... Well, that's a question I've... I've, I've heard a lot of people who are very successful writers feel like they're just constrained, that they're they're being pushed into a certain kind of quotidian New Yorker kind of story mm-hmm. that they didn't want to write. I mean, Michael Chabon has written passionately about how creative writing programs have forgotten things like plot, mm-hmm. <laughs> forgotten things like writing uh, compulsive stories. And I know that a number of people... Uh, have dropped out of creative writing programs because of that, mm-hmm. because, they, because they actually wanted to write. Uh, and uh, it, But you didn't feel like you were necessarily being told to write one kind of fiction, or did you? There was definitely like a trend towards a particular kind of fiction. Yeah. And when I was in the program, and for like a couple of years after, I wrote that kind of fiction. I wrote very obscure literary stuff about, you know, like, angry young Canadian men <laughs> um, being all like morose about shit and just uh, yeah like really nice prose and really like obscure hidden meanings that didn't really mean very much and so I wrote them um, but eventually I was just like boring myself and then when I kind of like went back to science fiction and I remembered like oh like I loved reading this when I was a uh-huh. kid I could write this uh, I kind of just never looked back like I haven't really written any any like non-fantastical fiction since it's been years and years how did you get into Clarion? Um, I I can't remember who recommended it to me uh, like my first exposure to the science fiction world was at ICFA Oh, good. Yeah. With with Kit. Yes. Yeah. And I got there through the the Dell Award. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, it was someone, some other, like, finalist for the Dell Award. Or no, the winner that year of the Dell Award. She was talking about Clarion, and she recommended that I I give it a shot. Yeah. And so that was 2014 I did Clarion West. I know we did this on, on a panel at a ReaderCon, but t- talk a little bit about Kit Reed because she was, I mean, she's probably one of the most important influences on younger writers and media writers and Daniel Handler and Joss Whedon and that sort of thing. And the fact that somebody as young as you were still finding her advice useful and her mentoring helpful was one of the things I think was badly overlooked when she passed away that she was just uh, she'd been writing for 50 years she had an amazing collection of stories but the number of people that she mentored and she must have just you were just telling her about your fiction and she wanted to see it yeah I mean well clearly she was like ageless basically yeah like I never had any conception of how old she was because she was just like this ball of energy right. yeah I met her that first year at ICFA um like you already know this annex is dedicated yeah to her because she was the one who well first she took an interest in my fiction you know she mm-hmm. i was she was talking about she was writing um at the time she was writing where yeah oh yeah that's yeah. A really 
um, and we were talking about like ghost ships and like disappearances mm-hmm. and stuff. And I told her I was writing a ghost ship story, and she was like, "Well, send it to me." Hmm. And so um, I did, and she gave me some really great writing advice, which mostly involved like cutting out a lot of unnecessary stuff. <laughs> Um, and that story ended up selling, and it's now in the collection as well, coming out in October. Uh, and then she was the one who got me an agent. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because um, like I was pitching Annex. At the time, it was called Mothership. I was sending it tons of agents. I had a bunch of you know like full manuscript requests, and then like, ah, no one quite wanted it enough. And I was basically just, like, complaining and <laughs> take hit about mm-hmm. this. And she was like, oh, well, give it to John Silversack. Yeah. And that was it. And Silversack is smart enough to listen to Kid Reed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so without her, the book probably would not be a book. There are other mentor figures like that. I mean, that she's somebody you almost stumbled across because... You were lucky enough to be sitting out at the pool bar, I'm sure, with a table with a bunch of people listening to Kit. Mm -hmm. Anybody else that you consider an influence like that? Um, I mean, there's been a lot of people who have helped me in my career. I think a lot of the, just like the short fiction editors Mm -hmm. who have been taking my stuff and like promoting it. Um, Like Sheila Williams has been great. Yeah. Um, Gardner Desois. Mm-hmm. was really really big um, he really liked my stuff and he was always you know like making people read it who otherwise would never mm-hmm. find it uh, which was terrific um, Jim Kelly was one of the teachers at Clarion and he's yeah ever mm-hmm. since then he's been like trying to connect me to right. everything yeah. and everybody and he's great so would you recommend workshops and clarion type things to writers starting their careers now? Uh, I don't know. I think the most important thing you get from that kind of experience is the connections. And so if that's what you need is to make connections within you know, publishing and meeting other writers, then it's great for that. Uh, I don't think you can like go to a workshop and now you're a really good writer I think maybe it can kickstart things for some people and I think for some people they get a lot out of it and other people they might not Um, but the one thing that everyone will get out of it is the just the networking opportunities I guess well the other thing that I've heard again from people who were frustrated by creative writing programs even good ones like Iowa is when you get to Clarion, there's a sense of permission. There's a sense you can... Whatever you're writing, somebody is going to be interested in it. Somebody's going to be sort of in the same ballpark that you're writing in. And you're getting different instructors with very different styles of writing so that, mm-hmm. so that there's never been a sense of, uh, of being constrained into that Raymond Carver kind of story that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that part is part of it, too, is that I, the, the one word I've heard from many people is that you know, when I when I met other science fiction writers, not necessarily Clarion, it could be a local workshop, it could be, is that suddenly I realized that I was allowed to write what I wanted to write. Yeah, definitely. And at Clarion, there's a big enough group that there will always be at least one person who just thinks it's the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. You know, who really connects with whatever story you write. Uh, it's a great way to find like minds, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, like when you find people who really seem to get what you're trying to do with a story, those are the best critiquers because 
they know like what you want to do with mm-hmm. it and they see ways to help you get there whereas you know a bunch of people are just like well I would have done it like this mm-hmm. yeah which is usually less helpful I was teaching a science fiction class once and there was a a couple of really bright students in it uh, and one of them was an Ian McDonald fan which I thought was great mm-hmm. but there was this other kid who was otherwise very tolerant of every he, he, his only critique of everything we read that semester was Neil Gaiman could have done this better uh-huh. and, and we're talking about Robert Charles Wilson science fiction novels we were talking about uh, I don't remember what else but it was clear that he, he wanted one kind of fiction in the world mm-hmm. and my point about Clarion is you're that's not possible with a, 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 as diverse a group as you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a sense that uh, you can... The, 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 I've also heard people say, that, Clarion, that there's somebody who just hates their fiction from the beginning and can't ever deal with it. But even that became a learning experience because you realize, okay, there are some readers out there who don't like what I'm doing. Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to remember that, that like not everyone will love us mm-hmm. type thing. And... You can't write to like please everybody because it's impossible. So I always try to just write the kind of stories that I know I like. Mm-hmm. Do you have anybody else read your stories before you submit them? Uh, I'm very impatient. So usually mm-hmm. when I finish a story, I'll read through it like one more time, get typos and stuff. I'll put it into you know standard manuscript mm-hmm. format, and then it's. Gone. Yeah, it's off to Clark's world for my <laughs> my twenty four hour rejection or acceptance or whatever. Do you think you'll always be the be the, be the kid at the library with it, you know, going to the story competition? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, it it sounds like it had a profound effect on you. Uh, well, the thing about short fiction is that it's like this really tight like reward loop, you know, because mm-hmm. with a novel you put in so much time and effort, but with a short story it's fast. You send it out, you get that immediate sense of like accomplishment, and then you get an acceptance or a rejection really quick, you get paid really quick, you get to see it go up really mm-hmm. quick. And so for me, it's just, yeah, it's the best, the best feeling. Do you feel like it help, it's helps you build an audience? I mean, how do you decide what market to send to? I usually just go by the hierarchy of payment mm-hmm. and just kind of like, uh, move downward from there but every once in a while I'll write a story where it's like oh so and so would love this yeah. like for example oh this story is like just funny enough for Asimov Sheila would love this so I'll just mm-hmm. send it directly yeah yeah mm-hmm. how important is it to you to be prolific I mean because I notice you're like in your bio it's like 15 stories most ever in a year kind of thing published mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking it, it sounds as though that kind of productivity feels important to you. Uh, yeah, like my secret goal is to be more prolific than um, um, who's like the all time for most short stories published. I don't know. I mean, for a long time, I thought Robert Reed was going to be the most prolific because he was showing up like splitting up you know, 14 slots a year between Asimov's and at that time FNSF. Well, yeah, he's up there. Harlan well, published over 1,200 stories. Yeah. But that was over 50 years. Yeah. Uh, I've always wanted to hit, like, 700. Stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess you're on track. That's all, not really that hard at this rate. No, I just got to, like, not die or anything. <laughs> well, I mean, at the, at the rate you're 
publishing, you can't be getting too many rejections. There can't be too many stories that end up just dead. No, there aren't. Like, I don't really have a trunk anymore. There's no, like, there's no stories that just don't go anywhere. Um, yeah, usually someone will want one. Mm-hmm. Looking back, is there a point where you feel like you learned how to structure a story? Um, I feel like structure... The structures can be different. I've learned that there are like a few different kinds of structures that people like. Uh, like with short fiction, I feel like there's kind of a lot of just behind-the-scenes tricks that you can use that people will like every time. You know, like you start a story in one place, you bring it back to that place at the very end. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's like shortcuts to emotion, just like uh, being more inside a character's head and just coming out and like telling sometimes more than showing which people always say you're not supposed to do um not trying to be too clever uh, I think uh twists a lot of the time aren't really necessary you could take the twist and put it like right at the front of the story mm-hmm. and the story is stronger for it because mm-hmm. people are thinking yeah. about it all the way through yeah a lot of these are technical kinds of decisions and I can't figure out where you picked up because you're, you're talking about this as a, as a seasoned writer who's been writing short stories for 50 years and you, how did you learn all these tricks that you're talking about right now? Oh, well, I, I mean, obviously I have had writing instructors Yeah, like I did Clarion West and before that I did have creative writing teachers um, I think a lot of it is also just like trial and error and yeah, just kind of figuring out what makes sense for a story and I really do view like short story writing as a craft mm. I don't think of myself as an artist I think of it as you know like carpentry you know this is how you make a short story so do you find yourself going back and sort of looking at a story you've done and going this works this way that, this works like that I can see what that is and then maybe you're going on to write another one you have that that you know that knowledge in your repository so you have this idea mm-hmm. and almost you're like, oh this is the idea for my story these are the characters for the story it's going to work and it's going to fit on that framework pretty much yeah. so now in a sense into, you know, conceptually 90% of it is done before you even start writing yeah I definitely have frameworks that I'll borrow and I'll mm-hmm. reuse uh, like I was saying before I have character types that I can like slot in from other places yeah so I guess kind of like the more you write, the more, the bigger toolbox you have uh, to draw on different sure. ideas. And do you Have you ever thought about collaborating? Uh, no, not until just now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd be open to it. I think it would be interesting. I've never done collaborative writing. There is a bit more, Christy, for other reasons that aren't related to this conversation, but also... It, it strikes me as the kind of thing that could expose you to other toolkits, other ideas yeah. as to how you do what you do. And even if you find there, you, you hate it and think it's terrible, at least you learn something from that process. Because I assume you'd feel, I mean, it sounds to me like that, pardon me, that learning is an evolutionary thing. Mm-hmm. Mm. As you get closer and closer to craft, the other thing that occurs to me is do you worry about repetition? I mean, because if you have toolkits and ideas and structures then there's that chance that you're going 
well, I'm doing a 3B in blue today, a 4C in red. <laughs> and then when you put 100 of them together in a pile, everybody gets to see that there's sort of 4Bs and 5Cs. Yeah, I actually have thought about that. I've thought about that quite a bit. Um, uh, but I've never been accused of being super original. No one has ever been like, <laughs> wow, your ideas are really out of left field. Like, yeah. Um, what I do, what I've always written has just been like, I like this, I like this, I like this, oh, combine them. Like, everything I've ever written has been just kind of a remix of something that I loved. It's a real synthesis. Yeah, yeah. and that's kind of just how I write, and so I don't, I don't worry about it. I don't spend too much time trying to, like, come up with something mind-blowing. I don't think you can force that kind of thing anyways. Yeah. yeah. And so I just write the stories that I enjoy. Rewrite them, mix them together, chop them down, expand them, whatever. There's something performative about that. There's something about... I, I keep going back to these music concert metaphors where you've got, a, you know, you, you've got a, a certain repertoire, you know how to do it. When you talk about this as a craft, it sounds to me like... Two, two kinds of people one are studio musicians good guy pick up artists who just know how to you know play the bass guitar in any context because they know all the moves on it the other group of people are the people who were the really prol- prolific writers of the 50s and 60s Bob Silverberg talks about short fiction almost the way you do he knows how to do it he knows how to put things together uh, he got to the point I guess where he didn't feel the need to do that anymore but by and large uh, he grew up in a world in which Basically, you had to sell 50 or 60 stories a year to make a minimum wage. And, uh, and, and as a result, I think, I think he would agree with this. He talked about himself as a craftsman, and it became more and more of a craft until he began to realize it's an art, but it never started out being an art. Mm-hmm. It started out basically assembling stories pretty much in the way you described it. Yeah, and I feel like it doesn't really matter like how you create the story like everyone writes differently uh, once the story is finished you know the reader is not going to see the nuts and bolts well mm-hmm. not all readers um, and every reader is going to get something radically different from the story because they're bringing you know their own lens to the story and so I've written things that I felt were kind of like you know like shoddy mm-hmm. and then for whatever reason people will read it and connect really, really strongly with it because of something in their own life or mm-hmm. whatever. And then other times I'll write something where I'm like, oh, yeah, this is really like deeply personal and wrenching, and it just kind of bounces off. And so there's no way of knowing like what will connect with a reader. And so I don't worry too much about... like. getting there I guess have you have you had people read a story and just completely miss the point but the way they missed the point was so interesting that you had to rethink the story yourself <laughs> yeah uh, yeah some people are really good at finding metaphors <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that I had no idea were were in there at all yeah so, so basically sort of we've got Annex is out in the world. Tomorrow Factory is coming out in, in October. What, you know, sort of, what's next? Sort of slogging through the endless sort of fields of novel for a while, and then yeah, yeah. So I have to finish the sequel uh, by the end of October, mm-hmm. 
and then I have to finish the third one like the following October mm -hmm. so I've got like a year for each book yeah and then I really want to just get back to doing short fiction for a while like as soon as I finish the sequel I want to bang out like 10 short stories yeah. that I already have like percolating and after the trilogy is done I want to give novels a rest mm -hmm. for at least for a while and just do short fiction for a year or two He's like, this impression is like out in the wilds of Canada somewhere near a barn <laughs> writing stories all the time. Uh, yeah, well, my parents want me to like stay in Grand Prairie with them for the summer, and they're a little bit out of the city now, so mm -hmm. it, it is really nice. And they joke about me like building a cabin or something. <laughs> there used to be a writer named, well, I'm sure there are a lot of writers, but there was a guy named August Derleth who was... Uh, uh, the first publisher of Lovecraft and a very prolific writer who lived in rural Wisconsin he had a house built outside of, uh, he had a big house called the Place of Hawks it's in Sauk City, Wisconsin which was this in, ornate sort of Victorian mansion but there was this weird little wizard's hut out back and he did all his writing there mm. <laughs> and if he were doing it today I know he would have that hut set up without any internet connection without any connect, without any phone without any way of getting to the outside world at all and that's how he got his writing done apparently yeah Wi-Fi is a huge productivity killer yeah. for me mm -hmm. yeah. uh, like on my netbook I've just like blocked like 15 websites that I know I can just waste hours and mm -hmm. hours on yeah in order to be more productive which honestly doesn't seem to be a problem, a problem for you. Yes, I don't think of it. Anyway, thank you very much for making the time to talk today, Rich. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope Annex and Tomorrow Factory are, are, are huge, and I hope you get through the, the new novel as quickly as possible so you can get back to what you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> then maybe we should hide this part of it from the, the agent. <laughs> but you realize that he doesn't know that you're nine, writing. Nine out of ten writers out there <laughs> are saying, I, I, I'm writing short stories so I can learn it, but I really want to write a novel. And you're almost the first person I've talked to who has the reverse reaction. Yeah, I can't wait to get back to those short stories. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll okay. look forward to them. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. And we're 